and welcome back to The Cauldron. This episode fell out of the Perspectives on the Witch Trials episode I did for She Speaks Volumes. Through my research, I came across a book, Miracles of Our Own Making, A History of Paganism, and the book caused me to reconsider much of what I had learned, or assumed, or imagined about the history of witchcraft. And I was thrilled that the author, Liz Williams, agreed to be interviewed for the Cauldron's pilot season. Dr. Liz Williams has degrees at BA and master's level in philosophy and artificial intelligence, and a PhD in the history and philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. In addition to writing Miracles of Our Own Making, she has published science fiction, fantasy, and other nonfiction books. A link to her complete bibliography is in the show notes. In this interview, I stay pretty close to my intention of discussing witchcraft in the Middle Ages, despite being very tempted by the philosophy of AI. Perhaps we can work that into a salon discussion somewhere down the line. Hello, and thank you for joining me in the cauldron. Hello, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I I really I loved reading your book. It was really eye opening for me, particularly because my my um, my understanding of pagan history was uh, I think very influenced by books that were written in the early eighties. Um, so, how did you come to write this book? So, I came to write it because I was asked to write it, and I don't really know how that happened. Um, but I think the editor at Reaction Books in London had read some of my my fiction and liked it. And so he asked me to do a... Uh, originally, it was supposed to be a humorous uh, history of paganism. We had kind of funny titles and so on. And um, I think then he got slightly cold feet and backed off and we turned it into more of a straightforward history. Uh, but it is very long. I mean, it's there was a lot I didn't cover because the span of time here is so long. Uh, you know, you're literally looking at the end of the Neolithic when Stonehenge was built, and we don't know what those people believed, right up until the present day, and that's a long span of time. Um, so there is quite a lot that isn't covered in the book, and there's an awful lot of um, Irish uh, folklore and mythology and history which isn't in the book either, uh, but other people are covering that um, you know, from their own perspective, so, so that's okay. So we just really had to confine it to England, Scotland, Wales, and a bit of Northern Ireland and the Isle of Man. How did you find the research process? Like, was information hard to find? Because you have, there's ideas in here that I'd never even considered before. Okay. Uh, no, it wasn't. A, a lot of it I did know. A lot of it I didn't know. And I had quite a few uh, misperceptions as well that got corrected on the course of that. I mean, writing a book is great because you learn stuff. And it's not just that you're you're sort of downloading everything that you know. You're actually learning stuff and revising your own opinions. Um, I'm doing another book for Reaction at the moment on um, folklore and shame and transgression. And I'm kind of revising my opinions more and more as that goes on. And that's like a really interesting process for me. Um, so, no, all the information is, is out there. Um, there are a lot of misperceptions. And I do totally know what you mean by those early 80s books. And I'm sure a lot of that was written in totally good faith. Um, you know, it was based on the information that was available at the time. Um, but now quite a few historians, including Ronald Hutton, who's a friend of mine and an influential uh, professor of history in that particular subject, is, is looking back on those and seeing where some of those ideas actually came from. And I think the millions of people burned, for example, dates back to the late 19th century 
and a woman who misinterpreted a statistical sample. And again, she did it in good faith. You know, these are not like hoaxes or anything. Uh, but history changes all the time as we have new techniques and as new information comes to light. Was that, was that Margaret Alice Murray? I think it was, yes. Um, oh, no, it wasn't Margaret Murray. It was, I think it was somebody else, sorry. Yeah, I think it was somebody else, but I can't remember. Her. I'm dreadful with names, actually. Um, I can't remember her name for the present, but I will look it up. Um, but it's worth looking. I think it's in um, one of Ronald's books. He did a series of essays that are collected into one volume, and it was in one of those, looking at where that actually came from. But uh, uh, no, a lot of people here weren't burned for a start. They were hanged, generally, in, in England, certainly. And, um, you know, it, it was an issue in Europe. It was, it was much more widespread in Europe than it was here, and it was much worse in Scotland. It was bad in England, but it was, which is, as I think I try and sort of bring out in the book, a lot of witches were targeted not because they were actual witches. That was a slur um, generated towards them to justify the conduct of people who wanted their house, for example, their lands, um, who they were difficult neighbours, somebody wanted them out of the way. Um, in the case of the Witchfinder General, which was a self-appointed title, uh, that came about because the assize system collapsed. So the actual legal system at the end of the Civil War had kind of collapsed. And this basically this 20-something psycho uh, decided to come in and make money um, targeting elderly and vulnerable women because he got paid a bounty for every witch, and I'm using this in inverted commas, um, he exposed and his reign fortunately didn't last very long. He died of natural causes, some disease. Um, but people like that did do an awful lot of damage. Um, that actually brings me to my, my next question. The, because the chapter I want to focus on specifically is the Middle Ages, particularly the witches who weren't. Well, a lot of people, um, it, it, it's really difficult to say because quite a few of these people were vulnerable and illiterate and we don't know what they were actually practising. They might have been practising witchcraft, but it would probably have been within a Christian context. They would have been doing things like, um, for example, using the Psalms to predict um, the future, which was a, a big thing. It's not now so much, but might be in Hoodoo, actually, but it's not in, um, in modern witchcraft because we've become gradually more and more pagan as the 20th century has progressed. Um, but the, the actual sort of legal definition of, of being a witch is that you're doing harm. So if you can be found to be doing magic that is harmful towards other people, then bang, you're a witch and you're up for arrest, um, imprisonment and probably death. If you're not doing harm, and an awful lot of people uh, were practising what we would now term magic in that period, but they were known as cunning folk, cunning men, cunning women. And these are more what we think of as the herbalists, um, the midwives to some extent, the healers, but also people who practiced divination, people who were engaged in things like treasure finding, which was a massive part of Middle Age and um, Renaissance magic. Um, the church actually called quite a few people in to try and find treasure under, I think, the floor of St. Paul's Cathedral. And it was like you have magicians, cunning folk, and the clergy working together to try and find treasure. Now, that's not something that we do very much in the magical world today, but it was a really big deal in the Middle Ages. Um, and those people weren't touched. You know, they weren't arrested. Um, they weren't prosecuted. Not all of them were men. and There were a lot of cunning women as well. So it's not quite as simple as, uh, you know, they're, t they're totally misogynistic and they're targeting 
women, although the bulk of the people who were accused of harmful witchcraft were female. So I think we've got to factor in a big dollop of misogyny in there for sure. Um, you know, and I'm very amenable to a lot of feminist interpretations of this phenomenon. I think it's it was used, it was weaponized, um, but it was weaponized for partly economic purposes and partly religious purposes. And that doesn't mean that these people are anti-pagan or anti-witch. Um, what it quite often means is that they're anti-Catholic. And quite a few of the witches, um, for example, in Pendle, um, Alice Nutter uh, did have, um, there's no evidence she was an actual witch. She did have dealings with some people and she wouldn't tell the magistrate where she'd been or what she'd been doing. Um, so the allegation was that she'd been at some sort of coven meeting and they were witches. They were probably Catholic recusants and she didn't want to get them into trouble and she knew she was going to die anyway. So she very bravely, she didn't shop people. Um, she just basically pretended, I think, that it was witchcraft, but it probably wasn't. It was probably Catholicism uh, because the split between Catholicism and Protestantism in this country at one time was really massive and tremendously disruptive and huge amounts of ill feeling on both sides. You know, people talk about a divided society today, but we've always been divided. We've just been divided in different in different ways. Um, so they were the witches who weren't. Some of them probably did think they were witches, um, and some of them may have been doing actual magic. I think some of the Pendle people um, at least thought that they were doing actual magic. Whether they were or not is really hard to say. Um, but one of them did confess to cursing somebody, and she probably had cursed him, actually. So it's like you've got to sort of take it on a case-by-case -case basis and, and split out all these different things. Were they Catholics who were being targeted? Were they actual witches who were being targeted? Were they just vulnerable women who had... And again, Alice Nutter falls into this um, category. Really nice house. Local magistrate wanted hands on, to get his hands on her house and her property. Um, and he, he, even though she was married, actually, she wasn't a single woman, um, he managed to do so by getting her off the scene into jail in, in Lancaster and eventually, I think, hanged. Um, and that's a terrible thing. I've, I've seen her house, actually. We went up to Pendle some years ago and we visited um, it's it's actually a private property but it's a beautiful house it's described as a cottage um, but it's bigger than my house and my house has seven bedrooms you know it's absolutely massive it's more like a sort of really big long low wealthy person's house um, so not all of them were economically vulnerable but socially yeah they were vulnerable does that make sense? It's it's really it, really it is no it is it was one of the more fascinating things that I learned from that book from your book that um and also I hadn't considered before I was born in Blackpool and went to a Catholic school I come from a Catholic family now of course in Lancashire there's a lot of pockets of Catholicism I grew up thinking that was the norm for England and didn't realize until later that. Actually, that wasn't like it wasn't the norm. So I was like I was particularly interested when and it made a lot of sense, though, uh, looking at the Pendle trials, I was like, yeah, that's exact. It just feels like, yeah, that's what happened. Right. Yeah, it, it, it does make a lot of sense. It's it's really weird because, um, I mean, we have a yeah, we have a Catholic church not far from here in one of the villages. And every time I see it, I'm like, oh, it's a Catholic church. Because to me, that's quite that's actually quite unusual for Somerset. And of course, you know, we live in Glastonbury and the, the whole centre of the town is this massive ruin, uh, which wouldn't be a ruin had it not been for Henry VIII wanting a divorce and deciding to 
go Protestants and break away from Rome. So, you know, these, these, these sort of impacts um, of those actions are still reverberating today. And, and it's interesting about Glastonbury too in the tour is that uh, I think anyway, maybe it's from a different source, but Miss of Avalon was such a hugely influential book back in the 80s that now people look at that ruin and see something that's not actually there. Uh, they, they totally, yeah, yeah, they totally do. Yeah, it's um, it's it's really that's really interesting actually because I was having a conversation with somebody online about Mr. Avalon this morning, and uh, when I was a teenager and a sort of aspiring um, you know pagan, I just thought this was a, like the ultimate feminist pagan book, and it's only like later you read it and you think, Christ, this isn't fe- this isn't really feminist at all. You know, they're all backstabbing each other, they're all manipulating each other. Vivian manipulates Morgan horribly, and it's like, oh no, you know, it's sort of slightly disillusioning really. Um, and quite apart from Marion Zimmer Bradley's, um, you know, negative reputation these days, which was unfortunately well deserved, but the book itself does remain very significant, I think, and and it's certainly very popular. But we occasionally got people asking us. I mean, literally, somebody was asked what time the boat left in Glastonbury, and she was like, "What do you mean the boat? It's like the boat to Avalon." No, it's like a parallel dimension. It doesn't, you know, it, it might actually exist, but. Yeah, it's not very easily accessible no, these days. There's no actual boat no, there. There's no actual boat, like a bus stop. You know? It's very hard to find that boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on platform nine and three quarters. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> okay. And um, in a in one of the uh, the. One of the other interesting, one of the interesting trials that I've been looking at for this podcast is the North Berwick trials. Okay. Because I hadn't realized until until going into what those trials looked like that that was actually not what it seemed like. That was another one where it kind of mm. spun out of control and became really, I think, about yeah. the um, the right to the throne. Right, who was going to be on the throne and less about, yeah. you know. And then uh, it looks like James, yeah, James's interest in um, in uh, finding and persecuting witches came about because of that trial. Right, right. Right, that he got very interested in it. Well, I mean, he had an interest in it going in, but that that's really what, why he wrote Demonology. That's right, yeah. There's usually like an ulterior motive. Um, for these things and um, you know it's it's only when you start looking for the ulterior motive that you it's it is really interesting because you start getting a lot of um, kind of view you you take a different view of it basically Um, you take a different view of it and it's um, I'm actually just looking up um, uh, one of the witch trials uh, now but it's um, some of the stuff that uh, we went into We've, we've started doing a podcast of our own actually but we've only done about three episodes and that some of that is on which it's called witch busting and i didn't realize until i um, started looking into it that um oliver cromwell as in the um the the general the leader of the new model army not the previous um thomas cromwell his grandmother was implicated in a witch trial um and she actually accused somebody or was sort of involved in a series of accusations against a local woman um the woman was accused of witchcraft. Um, Cromwell's gran went round to see her and in sort of was, was kind of sent round as the lady of the manor to give her to, to, to be an objective witness. And like, was she hell an objective witness? She grabbed a chunk of this woman's hair and cut it off, um, it, which was like a, a sort of a witch detection test. And the woman not unnaturally actually cursed her and she died. So, you know, Oliver Cromwell's gran is like killed by witchcraft. 
And there's this this whole scandal that seems to have just reverberated through this this particular district. And uh, you know, you don't really know what what actually happened there. Um, whether somebody wanted um, land or property, or whether somebody had actually had a row with this woman and decided to accuse her, because I think there was an awful lot of that going on. Um, you know, I'll try and get my neighbour into trouble. These days you'd accuse them of paedophilia and report them to social services. Then you call them a witch. You know, it's, it's still a false allegation. Yeah, and, that's, and that happened too in the North Barrett trials. There was some property that changed hands, right? Like, like right. a big yes. piece of, like, nice property that was grabbed. Yes. Um, one of the interesting things that you mentioned in this chapter too that that really, like I say, changed how I how I understood the witch trials was that the church's definition of witchcraft changed during this time. Like early on and mm. like in the early Middle Ages, they didn't they, the church didn't believe in witchcraft. No, you can't accuse somebody of something that doesn't exist. So how did that how did that come about? Um, I think that came about again through um, either it was um, religious conviction. You know, somebody had a series of revelations about it. Or more probably, it was a political expediency, um, because again, it was a, a weapon. You know, it became weaponized, and people realized how useful it was that you could get rid of people, um, inconvenient women largely, and I think they, um, they, they, yeah, they basically just weaponized it. Um, it's a very cynical move, um, and I'd be interested to see um, because there are countries which um, have witchcraft as a crime today. Uh, mainly some of the African countries. I'd be interested to see the political and economic reasons behind that, um, because I don't think it's just religious hysteria. I think there's something um, that is a much more sinister agenda behind these allegations of, of against women particularly, uh, being witches. And I think you've got to dig quite deep into to that. With With those modern cases, I don't know enough about the culture's concern to say what that is. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't a political and ideological and economic agenda behind it. Like, you know, you can get a Google search alert, right? So I created this Google search alert. So every day I get um, an email from Google that's like, here's the top news stories that mention witchcraft. And a lot of those are from Africa. And it's they're actually very interesting, like having looked at them over, I don't know a lot about it, but having looked at them over a couple of months, I can certainly see this trend because they're all small papers, like all local communities. It's so interesting because it does have that same kind of feel that this period, the witch trials period in Europe has, right? Yeah, it, it does. It's got that same vibe to it. And that's not to say that people don't believe in actual magic and actual witchcraft. They may very well do. Um, and they may very well did then. I'm, I'm sure a lot of the people who were targeting um, witches did think that there was such a thing as negative magic, cursing, all the rest of it. Um, you know, because a lot of people are quite superstitious, particularly in small rural communities. Um, you know, it's very much a thing. And, you know, it, a lot of this is, is sort of, I suppose we're basing it kind of on the tacit social assumption that magic isn't a thing, that it's not actually real. Um, whereas a lot of pagans, myself included, do believe in it. You know, we do think it's real. Um, but we do think also that something else was going on, you know. So I think we want to sort of um, get away from the, um, oh, they were just all making it up and, um, you know, it didn't really exist. It probably did, but I think we've got to look at, like, the whole picture as much as we can with these witch trials. 
it seems to me that there were other things going on in this period of history that have led us to today where um where magic and witchcraft are seen as superstitious or um fantasy yes uh, during this time, also, the age of reason comes out and our interest in science comes out and empirical evidence and what we what yes. we want to believe. Right. What we yeah. choose uh, to believe. Absolutely. You know? um, Making abs- it an yes. either or, or thing like we have to believe in science or magic. You can't believe in both. Yes. It, well, it right? got like very polarizing. polarizing. Yeah. Very polarized and very binary. I mean, a, a lot of people will be aware that Isaac Newton did a lot of research into alchemy as well as into prototype physics. And um, that sort of mentality uh, went out quite quickly um, once the Enlightenment happened. And I do also think that that, there are social mechanisms that gradually, um, as we became more industrialised, those came into play. um, So that nowadays, if you um, think something's been stolen, you go to the police. If you've got a health problem, you go here to the NHS. You go to your doctor. Um, you know, if you've got um, if you've got other issues, you economic issues, you go to the bank. Whereas in the past, they didn't have recourse to any of these resources. You know, there wasn't a health service, there wasn't a police force. So it's like it's really difficult to know who to go to. So a lot of people would have gone to the local cunning person to help them out because there was nobody else. And now there are actually more reliable methods. And in your book, too, you talk about priests performing some of the rites that we would associate today with paganism. Yes, I do. And um, I think uh, uh, there are some there are things like the Saxon land charm, that sort of merged into the church. You know, it's very difficult to tell an unbroken line of, of descent between pagans then and pagans now. But I think a lot of this did kind of segue into the church. Um, We don't know much about Norman magic at all. I've been able to find out very little about Norman magic. But Saxon magic is actually quite well documented. And some of that, they just basically changed the names from Odin and Loki to um, the Holy Father and Jesus Christ. You know, so a lot of that was sort of taken on board. And nobody really had a problem with it. You know, an awful lot of grimoires were owned by by priests and clerics because they were the only people who could read. And they had the time. Um, so a lot of those people were actually doing kind of prototype magic. And if you wanted, if you had a problem, you'd go to the priest and the priest would sometimes essentially do a rite to sort it out. And I think, um, you know, anybody who's uh, been to Ireland is aware of the the faith placed in saints. And that was very much the case um, in pre-Protestant England. It changed after the Reformation. Yeah, because it's, it's very Catholic. Yeah, they, it's very Catholic. They really did have this sort of um, role of local folk um, spirits, really, like spirits of place more than what we think of today as a saint. Um, and there was one that um, you could go to and petition for your husband to be killed. You know, and when the when the Reformation um, kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of police force went round to this church to, to shut it down, they found this massive queue of disgruntled women I can't remember which saint it was, but it was a female saint petitioning this saint to have the old man taken out because she was unhappy with him. And this is not really very saintly. You know, we don't think of this as just, you think of a saint as a really nice sort of person, a nice entity. And this was like, more like Carly or something. So, which I thought was just awesome. I have to say, I found it really hilarious. I shouldn't do, I guess, but I did. 
given the uh, the elite, like the amount of power that men would have had, a husband would have had over his yeah. wife in the day, Absolutely. I'm guessing that not all, like yeah. some of those men may well have deserved to have been taken out. You know? I'm sure I mean, they did, but some of them, some of them possibly not. So terrible, um, hypocritical thing to say, yeah. considering that, you know, in terms of domestic <laughs> violence, we're like, you know, no one ever deserves it. <laughs> Um, you know. No, no, exactly, exactly, no. No, don't petition saints to kill your husband. It's not a good thing. But um, it does show the difference that in a, you know, between then and now in terms of how these entities were regarded. And that sort of um, you know, magical purview, which permeates the whole of society, you know, it's a very magically aware society. And um, I think that's something we... We have lost in some areas of the world, but some areas of the world definitely do still have that. Yeah, that's um, so looking back in the history of all this is really interesting. Like listening to all of this talk about um, how there was this, the relationship between the church and witchcraft was not as clean cut as we think. Like it wasn't like the church on one side and witches on the other. That's not what happened. Here. No, absolutely no. So given that, how did we come to understand today? How did we come to think that today? How did we get to this point where we believe, where we'd forgotten about this merging? Well, I think I think a lot of it is a reaction directly to Christianity, um, because a lot of the pagans whom I knew when I was like a newbie pagan. Um, and I'm 58 now, so I'm nearly 60. This is way back in the 80s, um, early 90s, I guess, but mainly the 80s. A lot of pagans in this country had come out of a Christian background. And they, the reason they turned to paganism was because they were rejecting their Christianity. I didn't grow up in a particularly Christian household, so I know, I've never had that kind of knee-jerk thing about Christianity, although a lot of its precepts I, I don't like, actually. And as a feminist, especially as a young feminist, I did have a problem with it. Um, I will confess, uh, but I think a lot of them went went to, to paganism as a rejection of their Christian upbringing. And part of that is like a baby with the bathwater. Oh, they've always persecuted us. Oh, they've always been horrible. Oh, they, they started the witch trials. Um, you know, there's evidence of um, not a few priests actually stopping witch trials. Um, several pre people, one of um, the Witchfinder General's chief opponents was actually a cleric. And I think these are people of good conscience who basically say, actually, they do have some integrity and this is not right. And we can't do it. We've got to stop it. Um, so, but I think those stories got lost uh, because people's identity swung very strongly towards being pagan. And also, I think, um, I think feminism definitely did have a factor. And that's not to say that was wrong. Um, but it is to say that it was a thing that it's always got to be male versus female. Um, there's a, a lot of truth in it, but it's we've got to deal with it in a slightly more nuanced way, I think. Um, you know, now that we're kind of coming out of the uh, the reaction, we've got to get back to a sort of counterpoint. Um, and that's not to say that the church was right, you know, in a lot of areas. It definitely wasn't. Um, but it is sort of looking at a little bit more of a, a few more subtleties, a few more nuances, so that we can start having a... a a more detailed and in-depth conversation about this i think yeah i think i think it's easy today because because there are huge and obviously very horrible systemic problems within the church but that doesn't mean that that's the entire totally. yeah that that's the entire picture 
that yeah that happens right absolutely yeah yeah absolutely i can see why pagans react strongly to christianity particularly to fundamentalism i mean i've got a lot of problems with fundamentalist christianity it's not my thing you know it never will be my thing and i can see why people go towards a goddess-based spirituality uh, because they're rejecting that um, and absolutely you know they've got good reasons to reject it but in the past it's always a mistake to view the past as being exactly like the present you know we've got to try and get inside the mindset and the heads of people and how they actually saw the world sometimes that's it's very difficult to do because sometimes that's actually quite alien you know it's not like we think there's a there's a, a meme that's on Facebook. I see it. It pops up from time to time. And it says, uh, it says, we are the, we are the granddaughters of the witches you didn't burn. Right. That's the, but I feel like that's a really kind of simplistic yeah. way of, and it's also kind of, there's a, there's a romanticism within the craft totally, of like yeah. holding on to this, yes. you know, yeah, and actually, you know what? Th those grandmothers would have been Christians. You know, not not in the maybe the yeah. 1920s, but um, the great, 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 great grandmothers in the Middle Ages and Elizabethan times and Tudor England and Henry's England. Those those women would have been Christian. They weren't following a pagan religion, as far as we could tell. There might be some evidence that comes yeah. out to show that they were, but in general, they were Christians. They were still practicing magic because Christianity is imbued with magic and magical practice. And I think that's a, a perception that we've lost, that we've seen them as sort of carrying kind of a torch on from um, Saxon and, and Celtic times, which actually wasn't carried on and might not have been there even in those days. You know, the Celtic tribes treated women actually quite badly. The Saxons and the Vikings didn't. They were pretty progressive, ironically. Um, and I, a friend of mine's a medieval Welsh yeah. historian, so like I... You know, she has a whole rant about this stuff. Um, but, you know, she says, look at early medieval Welsh texts and see how they treated women. And they, they were like property. End of. They were not warriors. Yeah. yeah no, it's depressing, actually. Because yeah, I, same I thought, with like, you know, we look at like ancient Greece or yeah. same, right? Like appalling. Yeah, appalling. I mean, mm -hmm. I for one, I'm, I'm, I'm re I find myself lately reluctant to give up that romanticism. You know, I, don't, I really don't want to. I want to think of my Celtic foremothers as like these these feisty warrior kind of shamanic figures but i don't know that they actually yeah. were yeah so that's that's kind of depressing i yeah. have to say so I've, I've got a lot of sympathy with clinging to that view of the past but we've got to be we, you know we've got to be a little bit more methodologically rigorous really um tell tell me about your podcast witch busting what's that about um, so that is actually looking at witch trials and um, and kind of going into them, like the Cromwell's grandmother's case, like who was the witch finder general, like the Pendle witches. Um, I'm doing one on Somerset at the moment, and we're just kind of, it's it's a, it's quite dry, it's quite academic, but we're kind of looking at um, the the details of what exactly happened, and um, and sort of breaking it down. You know, were they kind old midwives who were persecuted by the evil church? Um, actually, in some cases, yes. In some cases, really, no. So we're looking at it on the case-by-case -case basis. I think that's fantastic. Um, I can put a link to that podcast in the show notes. Is that okay? Okay, that would that would be epic. Yes, I'll find yeah. that for you. Yeah, that'd be, that's fantastic. I think, I think it's such a great yeah, idea for a podcast. So great. So that was Dr. Liz Williams, author of Miracles of Our Own Making. There is a link to her book in the show notes, and I highly recommend it. 
Here we focused on the witch trials, but Miracles of Our Own Making covers ancient indications of magical practice through Edwardian and Victorian magic to the modern day. Next week's podcast is a panel discussion on the impact of social media on the craft. Social media has brought witchcraft to a new generation, but has witch talk diluted the craft being merely an aesthetic? Or is the digital space opening up new avenues of practice? You can learn more about the discussion, the participants, and access the recommended reading list at sbat.tv.